This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, Muslim institutions in London, Ontario will not be partaking in funeral arrangements for Aaron Driver. He, of course, uh, the domestic terrorist who was shot in the back of a cab uh, outside his sister's home and, of course, uh, stopped uh, some sort of attack from going on. They are offering support to the man's family and advice on how to perform a service according to Islam tradition. But the funeral is expected to be held uh, outside of a Muslim institution in London. To talk more about all of this, Rahil Raza is with us, Muslim Canadian journalist, author, public speaker, media consultant, and uh, just an extraordinary scholar on all things uh, related to this topic. And Rahil is with us now. Good afternoon, Rahil. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Rahil, let me ask you, are you surprised that the Muslim institutions of London are, di- are distancing themselves from Aaron Driver's funeral arrangements? Uh, not exactly. I think that's a very personal matter. Uh, you know, whether how he's buried, uh, I don't think is important. It's the family's decision. Um, you know, he's going to a higher power to be judged, and may God have mercy on his soul. That's all I can say. Uh, but the Muslim institutions of London are specifically staying away from that. Is that well, good? Is that bad? Well, um, I, it's neither good nor bad. I think this is their decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to say what the intention behind it is. Uh, they are advising the family on how to uh, bury him and what the process and procedure is. So, um you know, whatever reason they have for this decision, I can't comment on it in the sense I don't know what their intention behind this. I would ass- I would assume their their intention behind this, and, and again, I am just assuming, Raheel, is that they want separation between him and them, and they don't want people to assume that that they supported him in any way or any of his radical thoughts. That perhaps is the intention behind this. But then this brings me to this big question that this man, Aaron Driver, was a convert to Islam. And, you know, we know that he intended to do something evil and harmful. So the bigger question that I uh, would like to ask, regardless of how, uh, you know, he is buried, is uh, that the community, the RCMP, CSIS, and even with due respect media, have they even taken the time to research, investigate, and question the person who converted him? I mean, Aaron Driver was not born a Muslim. He became a Muslim and someone helped him along that path. Somebody uh, helped convert him. And that is a very important connection. But nowhere do I read any kind of uh, strategy to find out who converted him Hmm. and find, you know, uh, who put these ideas in his mind. Someone actually directed him. Is imparted the political ideology that set him on this destructive course. Because, you know, a conversion to Islam could be spiritual, but it could also be radical. So for years we've been saying, uh, my organization, that find the root, you know, track it back to who are the people here in our land who are, uh, you know, manipulating the minds of young people who convert to radical Islam. Uh, let me ask you this, Raheel. So what is the role or is there a role of a mosque in trying to de-radicalize someone who may be in their presence? What role did that, because obviously they spoke out and they've said, you know, we tried to talk to this guy, we tried to reason with them, we kept authorities abreast of what was going on. What is the role of the mosque in situations like this? Well, the role of the mosque is just that, to make sure that, uh, you know, no hateful messages are coming through, to make sure that if they see signs of 
radicalization, they inform uh, the authorities in the right way. Now, in this case, um, I believe it's a failure of all of them together. Uh, you know, the community, the family, the mosque, the uh, law enforcement agencies for not being able to pinpoint that this man would be a danger to society. So uh, the, the, the mosques, if they know that youth are being radicalized, and this is not the first time, you know, when the Toronto 18 mm-hmm. uh, were arrested with the intention to uh, take up a terrorist cause, that was the same issue. They, they all went to the same mosque. And so there needs to be better monitoring of the kind of uh, support or lack of support or messaging that is coming. Maybe the first intention is not to say anything because you don't want any kind of a backlash, and I understand that. But we are living in very dangerous times where a single person uh, like Aaron Driver, if he had uh, been let loose, could bring about a lot of destruction. And for the safety and security of our communities, of our land, we need to be much more vigilant. We need to be much more outspoken. Uh, would the mosque known who radicalized him? Um, obviously, if they're following him and, and keeping tabs on them, would they know who he was talking to? It's and and could, he be, could he have just been radicalized over the Internet? It's not a case of somebody locally. There has to be somebody involved. Yeah. You know, a person on their own, especially one who is not a Muslim, is not a lone wolf. There's always some sort of connection. There has to be some sort of a physical connection. Uh, I mean, I know people are radicalized over the Internet, but, you know, there's then they go and talk to people and right. they express their views. They, they don't work, uh, you know, on their own. It's a psychological issue. It's an emotional issue. So, um it's hard for me to comment on whether the people at the mosque knew. But if they did know, if they do know who the people are in, involved in, uh, you know, putting these horrible thoughts in the minds of our young people, then they definitely should speak out, point them out, and we, you know, need to definitely take that into consideration. Can mosques be doing more? Are they doing enough, do you feel? They definitely should be doing more. There should be much more vigilance. There should be uh, checks on, you know, the youth that are coming in, who are they speaking to, what are they thinking. I mean, it's like a school. You want the students to be upfront, and if you see somebody who's disturbed, you want to investigate what the problem is and where it's coming from. But some of the mosques, mosques, unfortunately, not all of them, but some of them are part of the problem. We know that there are mosques here in Toronto where hate-mongering takes place, where there is, uh, you know, the sermons are about us and them. Uh, They're not uh, about loyalty to the land in which you live. And we have tracked some of those. So it's not, uh, you know, it it is a problem and it needs to be uh, taken into consideration. Whose responsibility is it to police that sort of thing? I mean, there certainly seems to, and we've talked about this before, there's a lot of political correctness in and around this discussion, and some don't want to uh, point fingers or ask questions. Uh, So whose responsibility is it, and what role do other Muslims play in this? Uh, The Muslims play a very strong role, but let me also mention that this is not a Muslim-only problem. The idea that this is a Muslim issue is something that is disingenuous. This is for all Canadians. If the safety and security of our land is for all of us, Mm -hmm. and all Canadians, regardless of faith, creed, culture, if they see or know something suspicious, should speak out. They shouldn't be politically correct, but at the same time, they should be, uh, there should be no hate or bigotry. That's really important. You know, a backlash 
backlash or physical backlash or any kind of hate is not a solution to the problem. The solution to the problem is to have a strategy to be able to talk about these issues, and it is the responsibility of every Canadian citizen to question when they see something that is against the values of what we believe in, which is, you know, a liberal democracy, respect for people of all parts, gender equality, uh, freedom of speech, um, freedom of religion, and freedom from religion. So when there, uh, there are red flags, when there are signs that something is not right, each one of us, I think, has a moral and ethical responsibility to speak out. But you must admit, Raheel, if I say it compared to someone like you that says it, it's going to be taken completely differently, or can be. Of course it will be, because there's an entire industry out there that tells you that if you speak out, you're an Islamophobe, and that is being marketed very, very effectively to shut up dialogue and conversation. So I understand, but that's, you know, what you have to look at is that this is a human rights issue. Uh, It's, you know, the religion part of it comes into play, of course, it's a Muslim issue, but it's a human rights issue. And if you see somebody being, someone's human rights being abused, I guess you would speak out. Similarly, people are shut up and they are uh, told that they shouldn't speak out and they're afraid to speak out. But I say that we should all do this together. A radical jihadist ideology is not going to be beaten by just, um, you know, a few people speaking out. Of course, Muslims are the frontline warriors in this war against extremism, against terrorism, which is growing by the day. And I would be the first one to speak out because I am a Muslim and I can say a lot of these things. But but I encourage my, uh, you know, Canadian, my Canadian friends, um, you know, my co-religionists, my people who share my citizenship and who are concerned about the safety and security of this wonderful land we call home, to also be vigilant and not be afraid to speak out with respect and with some reason and logic. Hmm, good point. Uh, with the case of Aaron Driver, he seems to be a textbook profile uh, domestic terrorist. Uh, is this about religion or a disenfranchised youth, possibly with, with a mental illness, that is just looking for a vehicle for their hate? Well, let me say that it is always a mental illness to kill innocent people or hmm. to have radical ideas about uh, harming people. So, you know, it's not a technical definition, but of course it is. Mm -hmm. But that's not the only reason, and it's not only about religion. The ideology that is coming from the Muslim Brotherhood, from Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, from Khomeinism, is an ideology of uh, control. It is an ideology of uh, the fact that the West is evil. So they have declared war on the West, and this is not me saying it. All you have to do is read their propaganda, and you'll know. According to them, in their mind, the West is evil. It has to be destroyed physically from inside, and they'll use any tool. So young people like Aaron Driver who are disfranchised, who are, have a vacuum in their lives, are the perfect targets for them to manipulate. And, you know, there are mercenaries who prey on young minds like this. So we need to know where our children are going, who are they speaking to, what are they reading. Parents need to be much more vigilant about what kids are doing on the Internet. I mean, you know, my kids were grown up and teenagers, but I still wanted to know what were they looking at on the Internet and what kind of TV they were watching. So there is a role for everyone, for civil society, for law enforcement, for the government. Everyone, you know, needs to be more vigilant about what is happening in our midst. And so uh, it's not a lone wolf. 
these are young people all over North America who are being sucked into this ideology. Why? Because there's a vacuum in their lives. And this gives them some sort of purpose. I mean, it's, it's a very violent purpose, but, you know, the, the way the, uh, the jihadists prey on their minds is to say, come, we'll give you support. We'll, uh, mm. you know, you'll do something great for the world. And they get sucked into it. We, uh, you, you talk about the domestic terrorists or the people getting sucked into it. What about those leading the charge? Can they be de-radicalized? How do you win this war? It's a war of ideas. It's a war of ideologies. Mm-hmm. And it's 30 years too late that we are talking about it. For 30 years, we have been warning that there is this ideology that is uh, being used to manipulate the minds of people. So you have an entire generation that actually has succumbed to that ideology. Uh, you know, there is, a, um, th- th- there is a short documentary called By the Numbers made by the Clarion Project. It's a brilliant documentary to show you the numbers of people in the Muslim world who are ideologically radicalized. They are not terrorists in terms of picking up weapons and killing people, but they are sitting time bombs because they have been radicalized about, uh, you know, Sharia law, about, uh, you know, us and them. They, they believe in violence as a solution. They have been, uh, they've been fed this victim ideology that they are somehow the victims and no matter what they do, they have a justification for it. And religion is always used as the hook and the bait. Mm. But in, in the recent cases we're seeing, like the Orlando terrorist, uh, a terrorist, that it's not always religion. It is about power, patriarchy, and politics. It's about control. It's about hegemony over the Western world. So are we 30 years too late, Raheel? I mean, uh, we hear lots uh, talking about how young people aren't critical thinkers anymore. They're not looking beyond uh, the situation that they're in. How, how do we combat this? I would say that we are 30 years too late and they are way ahead of us. And some of our weaknesses are lie in the fact that, you know, in a, a sort of an idea of arrogance, the Western world seemed to think that these were uncivilized people working from a cave in Tora Bora. They're mm. not. They have studied Western psyche. They know how to press the right buttons. They build up on the white liberal guilt. So, you know, they, they use words like colonization and occupation and ev- the Middle East crisis to justify their gains. But in the end, it is a subversive agenda. It is a mutated um, ideology. And, of course, religion has always been a bait for the masses, and they use it in, uh, you know, in places where they think it's necessary. So, I mean, even now, we see what's happening in Europe. We don't want this to happen in Canada. We don't want this to happen in North America. So we need to be able to, uh, to, to isolate this virus. It's a virus like a cancer, and we're trying to treat it with aspirin, baby aspirin. Why do they think that uh, their life is better than ours? Well, because they have been taught and they have been brainwashed into thinking that this life doesn't matter. The real life is in the hereafter. And they've also got this really uh, mutated idea that if they uh, kill themselves, they're going to have 72 virgins at their beck and call. I mean, how warped and ludicrous is that idea, but it sucks in those young people who are sexually repressed, so there is, you know, it's, it's a combination of factors that they play on. And also, they're living in a 7th century idea of the caliphate. This is why the concept of the caliphate is so attractive to them, 
you know, in the seventh century, life was different. These hmm. were tribes. There were no nation states. It was warring tribes. And there's nothing that ISIS and their ilk would like more than to be in, in, involved in street fighting in the streets of Toronto or to be sword fighting because in their minds, that is what the caliphate is. So instead of moving into the 21st century and modernizing themselves, this is, uh, these are Muslims who are uh, at war with uh, modernity, with westernization. They want to live in the 7th century. Will this bring the rest of the world together? It should. It certainly should. But unfortunately, you see divisions even in this because the issue is so heavily politicized. People don't look upon this as a common enemy. As I said, when it was communism, fascism, Marxism, globally the world got together to fight it. But now it's Islamism, which is political Islam, and nobody wants to articulate it. God forbid they should be called a racist or a bigot. And this has been fed and marketed and churned out on the backs of billions of petrodollars, and they've succeeded in shutting dialogue and discussion and debate. So the question that I have for our leaders and our government is, where is strategy? Where is the commission to deal with this? It's not the first time there's been a suspected attack or an attack in Canada. Are we going to wait God forbid for something big to happen before we sit down and strategize. Where are the Muslim reformists that you want to bring on the table? We are the ones who've been saying this, not now, but for over a decade, that it's an ideology. It's a war of ideas and needs to be fought with ideology. It needs to be discussed and debated. Is someone like a Donald Trump hurting or helping this cause? Well, the speech he gave a couple of days ago, and I've actually written an op-ed in USA Today, is that he really pinpointed some of the real issues. Uh, now, he has a very, uh, you know, crass way of articulating his yeah. ideas, mm-hmm. but what he said is that no other uh, Western leader has said that. He pinpointed the problems exactly where they are. He said we need a new approach because the previous government obviously has failed because terrorism in North America is on the rise. And he talked about the ideology. He talked about encouraging Muslim reformists to come to the table. He talked about setting up a commission. And, you know, these are good ideas. Not all his ideas are good ideas, but when he spoke about radical Islam, he hit the nail on the head. Hmm. Too bad the messenger was indifferent. Perhaps more would get it. Uh, our safety minister, Ralph Goodale, says, has been speaking out uh, recently, more he than, than Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, saying that uh, we have to do more to stop de-radicalization. Uh, he sounds like he's grasping at straws. He, he, he sounds lost to me. Uh, what are well, your yeah. thoughts? It's very easy to you know, put out a sentence saying, oh, we have to fight radi- radicalization. But what are you actually doing about it? on the ground. I'm a grassroots activist. I want to see a strategy. I want to sit at round tables. I want this to be the most uh, important issue that we are dealing with. It's a global crisis. Um, you know, it's like famine. It's like a flood. It's uh, a cancer. And, you know, we need, and the other side is victorious because every time there is an attack, they celebrate because they put fear into the hearts of the Western world. It's Basically very simple, but people make it complicated because of various political leanings and, uh, you know, it's so politicized. So it's very simple, really. Here is the problem. How do we deal with it? Rahil Raza has been with us, Muslim-Canadian journalist, author, uh, as well anti-racism activist and interfaith discussion leader. Rahil, thank you very much. As always, much appreciated.
Thank you. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Now we're going to move on to Uber. We'll, we'll talk about that coming up in the 1 o'clock hour. Uh, Uber, uh, remember the last six months, the last year, the, the, the debates that were going on, the arguments that were going on, the protests that were going on. And now we find out that uh, Uber finally has gotten its first regula- regulatory license in Toronto. Uh, taxi drivers still protesting. To talk more about all of this, Ella Verasiu is with us, Assistant Professor of Marketing at York University's Schulich School of Business and is with us now. Hello, Ella. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. How, signi- how significant is it that Toronto issues a license? I think this is ex- extremely significant in Uber's saga to get government officials and government bodies on board with its ride-hailing service. So this is a major milestone and a major win for, for Uber in Sh- the battle to gain legitimacy. Are, are people talking about this? It sort of seems to be a sidebar story today. Today it does seem to be a sidebar story um, because... Um, people have expected nothing less but Uber to succeed and to gain, um, to continue to offer its services throughout the GTA as well as in various cities across Canada. Was it inevitable that Toronto had to do this? I think it was. I think it was. I think Toronto consumers have spoken and they appreciate Uber's customer service, impeccable customer service and customer experience. Um, and so it, I think if Toronto had not issued a private transportation company license and agreed to uh, vet Uber uh, drivers in the future, uh, there would have been a huge customer uproar or consumer uproar within the city if Uber services were, to, were in danger of being cancelled. Would the consumer uproar be greater than the taxi uproar? Oh, for sure, mm-hmm. for sure, because it, it is the, the consumers that have come to uh, rely on Uber's top customer experience with air-conditioned and air-freshened vehicles, gum, water, and a smile waiting for you when you enter the car, and empathetic drivers, um, unlike less-than-happy uh, traditional taxi uh cab experiences. But Ella, remember when this all started, people were screaming, people were up in arms, uh, we're all uh, going to hell in a handbasket, uh, we're unsafe here, there's no safety checks, there's no insurance, you're, you're riding libel. Like, what happened to all those concerns? Um, well, first we have to ask ourselves who were the, the, the biggest screamers when all of this broke out in the past? and um, the taxi companies and the taxi industry and traditional taxi drivers were the ones pointing the finger at Uber's um, lack of, of vetting, properly vetting, allegedly not vetting their drivers and allegedly not having uh, proper uh, insurance for the cars. And we have to ask ourselves why in this sort of grand political battle or industry political battle were taxi drivers and taxi 
companies encouraging their drivers to make these accusations. And it was because the taxi industry had benefited for so long for being the top three transportation players um, and the only viable option to personal vehicles and public transportation for a long time. And so when you have a, a disruptive, industry-shaking innovation company like Uber coming in, of course, it's going to rattle the cages of um, established industry um, because it's going to cut into their market share and cause them to be more com- try to be more um, competitive when it comes to customer service and or start to protest in an attempt to destabilize and delegitimize the main direct competitor, in this case, Uber. It was very odd when this whole movement started because it was a new model. Uh, nobody knew how to license it. Nobody knew how to regulate it. And there was a lot of gray area uh, for the first uh, year first year or months or whatever uh, of this operating. What's changed? How do we? How are they now licensed? How are they now insured? How are consumers now protected? Well, consumers are increasingly going to become protected through the fact that the city of Toronto has officially licensed Uber as a private transportation company. And this is a reward, but it also comes with increased responsibility on the side of Uber. And one of the main advantages of having a legal city license is that it moves Uber away from the gray area of Mm -hmm. legality, illegality, to um, a clear legal area. And the the main implication for consumer safety is that Uber um, drivers will now get a license through the city, which means that they're they're going to be vetted and they're they're the city is going to do background checks on them and criminal background checks and driving history checks um, to ensure the safety of of Toronto citizens, which is great. On top of that. Uber drivers now have to have an increased car insurance and have to be able to provide proof of this car insurance. Is it possible to for the city to regulate this, to watch this, uh, or sorry, to monitor this? Obviously, they've regulated, but it, will it be will it be impossible I, for them to monitor this? I think with Uber's cooperation, it could be very easily monitored because. Um, Uber is an online app system. So they, right. the, Uber, the company itself, already has a database mm-hmm. of uh, driver's licenses, registration, um, and all, all the, the necessary information. So it becomes a matter of, of having open communication between the city officials and the government and the company database. Um, so I, I don't see this as uh, something to worry about as long as Uber is, is transparent and allows the city access to its, its information pertaining to the, the driver. We've all heard of the cost of, of owning taxi plates in, in cities and, and how those have become pensions for some people. Will it become too costly or more? Co- obviously, it's going to become more costly because it's going to, you know, you're going to have insurance and such and checks. But will it become too costly for people to drive for Uber? Um, 
I don't think it will. I have, as part of an ongoing multi-year, multi-city research project that I'm doing with my colleague at the Schwartz School of Business, Marcus Giesler, and another colleague from Northwestern University on the Uber universe so far, um, the majority of the, the of drivers that we have spoken to within this research context are happy to engage in driving for Uber, some of them do it full-time, some of them do it to supplement their current income because they like that they can manage their own time, manage their own hours, and be their own boss. Um, they don't mind paying a higher insurance, and they think that the percentage that Uber is taking for them to use the, the platform, the ride-hailing actual yeah. technology, is fair in exchange for... Um, the services that they're getting. And all individual cases were determining the an amount of do, a dollar amount that they wish to make per day, per week, per month. And, and um, they were happy and grateful for the opportunity to be their own boss. Is this a sustainable long-term project as more and more UberX or personal car drivers enter the system? That remains to be seen. Hmm. And if Uber increases the, the percentage that, uh, that they take from each driver, then this may change in the future. What about the value of cab plates uh, to both the cab operator and owner and the, the city? Will they lose money in any of this? Um, well, I think that the cab industry is in danger of losing money, which is why they are actively protesting um, the ride-hailing service. Yeah. And the, the city may lose licensing fees, but from how I understand the, the cab industry, there, there's also a gray area in there as well. Uh, but obviously the, the, the value of those cab plates has, has gone down drastically lately. Yes, it has. Um, will other cities follow this model? Is this? I, I remember, I believe it was Edmonton was one of the first cities to all of a sudden uh, uh, license these in 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 a municipal city and give it rules and regulations to follow. Is this a template other cities can follow? I think it is a template that other Canadian cities can follow, and it will definitely once a precedent is, is set. Um, it's really easy to be replicated, and I'm sure Uber and other cities will push for this as well. Where does this leave the cab companies, the traditional cab companies? What has to be done there? What's, are they going to fall by the wayside? Are they just going to change and improve? Where do you see that going? Um, if the path continues to be such that uh, the legality and the legitimation of Uber and maybe in the future other ride-hailing competitors such as Lyft in the U.S. will come to Canada, mm. then I uh, project that the traditional cab companies will have to in improve their customer service and their customer experience and their customer retention um, in order to remain competitive and successful in the industry. 
It was very interesting when this whole uh, movement started. Uh, a lot of people were unhappy the way Uber as a company handled all of this. They basically said, hey, not my problem. It's your problem. You guys got to come up with regulations uh, to, you know, in and around this new model. Uh, what about the way Uber handled this as a business? At the beginning of all this, a lot of people were slamming them. And now in the end, they got exactly what they wanted. So as a company, how did they how did they handle this and how do they handle moving into other cities? Um, I think as a, as a company, uh, Uber has grown and has matured. And I think that early on in the beginning of, of Uber's creation in the States, it was um, very customer-centric, forgetting that in order to succeed, as a as a disruptive or industry shaking innovative company, you can not only have um, consumers on board, but you have to gain the trust and support of all major players or actors within the universe in which you're trying to enter and operate, which also includes government officials, the media, and taxi companies. So I think Uber as a company made mistakes along the way, but I think it has learned and grown from these mistakes on how to better handle uh, future situations and how to gain legality and legitimacy within the different cities that it's trying to operate. Uh, is business, or sorry, is Uber a great subject to teach in business classes? Because this is certainly a business with a, a brand new model, a, a brand new everything. And it didn't fit within the traditional realm of business. It didn't fit in with the traditional realm of regulations or licensing or any of that. Uh, do you study how they played this? The fact that they, they basically had confidence in their product and, and didn't seem to sweat the fact that people wanted them out of their city. Yeah, we, it's, a, it's an excellent um, research project and topic of research that my colleagues and I are currently investigating. And, of course, we translate the things we do in, in research and in writing papers into the classroom. So it becomes a great case study, especially since it's a very alive case study. Um, and it's a very dynamic case study that uh, is global, potentially global in nature, but they, there are contextual and city-based differences. And, and by alive, I mean that it's a case study that changes. So it's a great learning opportunity for students. And what about just the way they pursued their ambitions? I mean, it was almost as if it was easier to beg for forgiveness than it was to ask permission. Yeah, well, that, that can be said for a lot of, of innovative companies and entrepreneurs uh, from past um, products that we now take for granted. Um, so there... Yes, they're industry shakers in the technology-enhanced ride-hailing service. So they're take, they're, they have completely revolutionized and transformed the cab industry or the transportation industry. Um, but their, their model of innovation and entrepreneurship is not that different from other um, companies that 
were unapologetic about the products that they brought to the market. That's fascinating. So, uh, in other words, if you're shaking up the industry, you're bound to be successful. And you have perseverance, and you learn from mistakes, and you grow from them, and grow quickly. (laughs) Um, And you try to gain legitimacy by bringing players on board. So, in the end... Uber did manage to bring at least Toronto City officials on board with this new private transportation company uh, grant or license. It's also nice when you can stand behind the phrase, you can't stop progress. I mean, it's as almost, it was as almost Uber introduced this to us and said, we can't really stop this. Like, how, how do you, you know, this is the future. How, how, do, you, how do you stop progress? That's also true. And they, they also, from the very beginning, the company was about customer experience mm-hmm. and making um, a tired industry where consumers were generally unhappy with the, the service, the cleansiness of cabs, uh, but they thought that this is the way it is. Um, that's how all cabs are. And just bringing in a breath of fresh air to an otherwise stagnant industry so what consumer so what is uber's biggest challenge as it grows uh, obviously it's now officially the norm or part of the norm in toronto uh you're predicting that's going to spread to other canadian cities what's the biggest challenge uber has as it grows uh to continue to gain the support of government officials in not only different Canadian cities, but other cities across the world, um, and to ensure the, continue to ensure the safety um, of both the riders as well as um, the drivers in terms of insurances and empathetic policies and, um, and also uh, perhaps in the future bring the taxi industry on board. What about so that changes can be made across the industry? Do you think there's room for both the taxi companies and Uber? Yes. It, it allows for um, healthy competition within the industry. What about the cities that have banned Uber? Uh, can they ban it forever? I mean, once you see cities like uh, progressive cities like Toronto jumping on board, how long can they keep it out? It depends how persistent uh, the regional man- Uber's regional managers are in lobbying for the list of the ban in the different cities um, and how demanding consumers of those cities are to continue using Uber and such ride-hailing services despite their illegality. Will it be long before there's another service in Canada, do you think, that's as big or making the gains that Uber is? Um, It depends on how fast uh, government officials are on board in legalizing ride-hailing services and moving them away from the, the gray area, but... I'm sure there are companies like Lyft um, that uh, may be eyeing 
Canada in the near future. Ella Varasiu has been with us, Assistant Professor of Marketing, York University's Schulich School of Business. Uber finally got its first regu- regulatory license to operate in uh, Toronto. Ella, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. As you may or may not know, uh, yesterday was Tragically Hip Day in Hamilton, and of course they performed at First Ontario Centre last night. Uh, I believe show uh, a show in Ottawa, and then the final show in Kingston, and that's it. This tour is over. Uh, we talked to Graham Rockingham yesterday about this, uh, wanting to hear his impressions post-show, and he is with us now. Hello, Graham. How are you doing today? Uh, I could use a little bit more sleep. But, I'm uh, guessing it was, you know, I'm thinking, I don't know if we're going to get Graham at noon. <laughs> I'm sure he's been busy writing all night. But we really do appreciate you taking the time to, uh, no to chat with us. No problem. I'm in the office. So. Uh, good for you, man. Uh, what time did you get to bed? Well, you know, I, I, I probably I, I went from the from COP, or excuse me, from First Ontario Centre to the office, uh, wrote up the review, and... Uh, which wasn't an easy thing to do, uh, and and uh, for this particular show, and uh, and then you go back home and you're totally wired. And you're it's yeah, really all you're thinking happy. about is the show. <laughs> yeah, that's right, and then you got to get up in the morning uh, and talk to you. So <laughs> here I am. <laughs> so why was it a difficult review to write? Uh, a number of uh, uh, things. I, I, I went in with expectations uh, uh, that I shouldn't have. I, I kind of expected the, the whole place to be. I, I, I imagined the show closing with courage and the whole place, you know, uh, singing to Gord and Gord yeah. standing there and tears in his eyes. And, and it didn't work out that way. It was a, a much different kind of show. It, and I, I, I knew it wasn't going to be a greatest hits show. But they went deeper into their catalog than I expected, and mm-hmm. uh, um, and uh, yeah, I had to search out songs and uh, uh, and go on the internet to figure out with some of those songs because I wasn't familiar with some of them, mm-hmm. uh, uh, lesser known tracks. It, I don't think anybody came out of there thinking, "Oh, I mean, I heard some people saying, oh, it's too bad they didn't do this. It's too bad they didn't do that." But everybody came out happy yeah uh, more just thrilled to be there and 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 glad they were there do you um, think people are going into these shows expecting too much or uh, i guess no. e- expecting anything at all i mean you know when when you try to f- figure out what a concert's going to be like usually you're disappointed well i i hmm, possibly my feeling is those people the people that were there and there was more than 18,000. I wrote in my original uh, 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 review, and I just updated it with uh, um, a fresher figure. There was more than 18,000 people there, which makes it one of the top three attended shows in COPS history, um, if not the, the biggest. Up there was Shania Twain and Bruce Springsteen. But I think my feeling is those people were fans they were there just to be in the presence of the hip and, yeah. uh, and down. Just to be a part of the they event. They just wanted to be part of it. It was uh, to say goodbye, if it is indeed goodbye, and to start the grieving process and be part of that. Um, that's why they were there. So really, there's no other expectations than that. The fact that the man is on stage um, uh, with a death diagnosis is, mm-hmm. is, is, is incredible in itself. Yeah. Um, 
and and it, it it was a different feeling in the crowd than other hip concerts. I mean, you know, the tragically yep. hip over the, the decade. Those yep. are wild shows. Oh, Crowds yeah. come to party. I yep. mean, you wear raincoats to uh, <laughs> keep the beer off your good shirts. Yeah. And, um, it, it wasn't like that this time. It was uh, a respectful audience, uh, a very respectful audience. Um, and uh, it, the, you know, Mr. Downey, I don't know if his voice was as, as good as it has been, but mm-hmm. hey, what would yeah. you expect at yeah. the end of a tour? Um, he was... He was his own self, but he wasn't. You know, he was the, the strange little moves were there. Um, uh, some of the mic moves were there. Uh, the, the little pocket hanky was always there, but it wasn't as outrageous yeah. as uh, uh, as we've known him before. Um, you know, he had, he had this do you think he, smile do you... face. It was like a Joker smile, you know, right. on his face the whole time, but. But uh, at the end, it was very moving. The, the song selections were very moving. The fact that he did uh, Scared. Um, and as I said yesterday, these songs have all taken on new meanings. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the exit uh, uh, line of Scared, which I used as my headline in the review, which is on the spec.com right now, is, is kind of eerie, you know. Uh, it was nice doing business with you. Yeah. Gotta go. Um, and that's a that's a really poignant line yeah. when it's being sung by a man uh, in, in Mr. Downey's position. So yeah, that that's moving. Um, it started out last night. I thought we're going to get a really big rock and roll show. I yeah. mean, they started out with two colossal numbers, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Meridian and uh, and, and Courage. Um, those could be showstoppers, either of them, and Courage certainly has been uh, uh, for concerts in this tour, and 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 it was full on. You know, it wasn't let's hold the mic up and listen to uh, the audience sing my song as so yeah. many uh, uh, artists do these days. Uh, no, it it was full on, and we had... now, did did the show start bigger than what it ended? Because lots of the yeah, time shows I, I, shows work the other way around. They start and then they build to a to a climatic end. This one did, and yeah. I was surprised the way it ended. The ending was very. I mean, we we it, it, there there wasn't a showstopper there. We had Fiddler's Green, which is a wonderfully sentimental sto- uh, mm-hmm. song. And a, and a and a and a good thing to send the audience off with, and then we had twist my arm. Yeah. Um, twist my arm is a rocker. It's yeah. not one of their biggest, mm-hmm. and it's usually, you know, twist my arm and I'll come out again. And yeah. that's what I thought was going to happen. Yeah. And, and then we get get then we get New Orleans or we get Little Bones. Um, uh, neither of those songs uh, were done. Um, Surprised at that, especially with New Orleans is sinking. Yeah, and and. Uh, we didn't get a nautical disaster, but 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 all of a sudden that was the end of the show. He's standing at the edge. The band walks off. Uh, I, I think his eyes were 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 teary, mm-hmm. uh, blowing kisses, raising his finger like I'm okay, and I see uh, you're okay, and and uh, it was a very moving situation. And then all of a sudden he said, then all of a sudden he said. Uh, 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 you know, I, it was something like "I love you, Hamilton," and he turned around and said, "Where did the band go?" <laughs> and then he walked off and said, "See you later." <laughs> well, that was it. Yeah. And uh, you know, the always enigmatic uh, Gord Dowdy, and 
and that was kind of I'm, I'm I, I think we were all then the lights came on and we're all wow is that it yeah so and and uh, and and I guess that was it and tomorrow night it's Ottawa and Saturday it's Kingston I what do you think Kingston will be like. <sighs> I don't know. You, you know, you think, are they going to bring up, the, I mean, they could have guest artist after guest yeah. artist. They could be a last waltz. But I don't think they're into that. Yeah. This is not, this is Plus, not I'm worried that because it is within uh, the realm of a TV broadcast that somehow it'll be limited. If it was going to go on another half hour later, it won't, you know, because of scheduling and blah, blah, blah. Like, I hope if the CBC, you know, I, I hope The it, hip don't work that way. Yeah, but the CBC yeah. does. So well, here's hoping that they just let it go till uh, it's yeah, over. They, 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 well, yeah, or we could have one of those flying pencil things in the, in the middle of the state. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> when the, uh, the announcer threw the pen, broke the pencil when they uh, decided to leave the uh, oh, yeah. overtime hockey game. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this. Do you think Gord Downey's having a good time? you think he's enjoying this? My, I, 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 I wouldn't... I think he is... How can you not enjoy that adulation and that connection that he made, makes with his fans? Mm-hmm. He has this wonderful smile on his face. It's almost like a Joker smile uh, uh, all the way through, pretty much. Um, it's uh, I, I can't even imagine what's going through his mind. Mm-hmm. To tell you the truth, that's uh, that's you know the the bravery that it takes to do that. I mean, he has to be enjoying it. What about other band members? What were what, what were their reactions? What was it, the look on? What was the look on their faces? Um, it's interesting. The band uh, you say that uh, uh, they came out in the first half of the show. They were very close together, grouped yeah. on the stage. Um, it was like they were playing a club stage, right? And 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 facing each other and close, like. Like the old days when yeah. they did play clubs, when they played played to nobody at Bannisters, mm-hmm. um, and 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 you could tell there was a good vibe there. Um, and then they spread out for the second half, and it's all Gord. You know, it was all Gord. Nobody took their eyes off Gord Downey the whole show, frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the band was good. Of course they are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. L- so. Connections different. Looking at each other different. Notice any of that? No, not at no, all. Just having a good not time. Having a good time and 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 down to business. Yeah, I mean they they they're this is a tight unit and they they had new songs to play and old songs to play. I mean that, that's not an easy thing to do. You know, so so. What was it like when the place was emptying out? Band's over. Everyone's going home. Emptying out the concourse. You know, it was usually quiet. That's what I'm wondering because usually everybody's kind of revved up. It was quiet. Yeah, it was quiet. Uh, I'm not sure solemn is the right word. It was just, it's over. Yeah. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it goes uh, on uh, on Saturday night. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm sure a lot of the uh, clubs in town will be having their own shows. I know Stone uh, Walls is putting up a special show mm-hmm. uh, to watch the TV. And then there's the uh, Gage Park. Uh, it's, I mean, yeah. It'll be just, it's over. Yeah. And I think it is over. Uh, I, I felt that way, certainly, from Gord Downey. Um, although he never addressed it. 
you know, the only banter he had was about playing in uh, uh, first shows in Hamilton about uh, how they were playing to zero people. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, but I, you could tell by the look on his face. You could tell by, uh, you know, one moving part, I think, in uh, Grace 2, uh, he, he's looking at an imaginary watch on his uh uh, yeah. on his wrist and counting down the the, the, the seconds on it. So and and, and I, just I, think how how difficult it must be for him. You know, he's trying to do this and and give something to the fans, something for himself and his bandmates too. But here he is. Yeah, there's a lot of money being made. Oh, yeah, there, there's, yep, there's, yep. <laughs> you know, they raised their rates. They had the merch that was going there crazy. That's what I, and also a note I had written down here. What about merchandise? Was that stuff flying off the oh, table? Oh, it was flying. I mean, yeah. uh, they, they opened the merchandise outside on the street uh, early in the afternoon, yeah. and there were several wow, merchandise really? points. And when I got down to the stage, uh, down to uh, First Ontario Center to pick up my ticket, that was about, that was before 6. There was huge lineups outside those merchandise places on the street. Yeah. And there had been all afternoon. You know, so, Unbelievable. Yeah. They're, they're they're making a lot of money off this. I mean, this is this is retirement fund stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, I'm, and I uh, I don't know for sure because all this stuff is, but I, I I understand that the the rates went up to yeah. you know, to, to book them. But the point that I was trying to make, the point that I was going to make prior to the discussion about merchandise was, you know, obviously, uh, you know, he's doing it for whatever reasons, and. Um, He's got this incredible relationship with his audience, and he knows... And a family. Yeah, and he knows he knows uh, the look in their faces. He knows what they look like. He knows when they're having fun. He knows when they've had enough. He knows when it's time to go. All of that. I mean, Springsteen the same way. They read their audiences, especially with a band and a front man like this. Mm-hmm. Think how difficult it must be for him to look down and see other than it's New Year's Eve, the hips in town on their faces, to see the concern, the love, the sorrow. It, it must be difficult for him. It goes two ways. There's no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Especially with the songs he chose to sing. Yeah. You know, as, I, as I said yesterday, all these songs have taken on uh, incredibly, incredible new meanings as... as uh, as the fans project the lyrics on to Gord Downey. Yeah, yeah. Even though the, the, these, the, these are songs like Scared is like a, a little horror movie so, uh, a song. Yeah. Uh, but but it's, it, it's what we all feel now for Gord. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as I said, uh, uh, you know, Grace, too, has is now become emblematic of, of yeah. the way he's conducting himself in this. Yeah. Uh, uh, Courage. I mean, that's an anthem yeah. for what what he's decided to do and conduct his the last uh, the final years of his life or, or months. Who knows? Mm-hmm. So, and and none of those songs were about that, but they are now. Yeah. And and, and uh, it's funny how a song can change its meaning. And that's the best songs do. The best songs, um, uh, the best poems mean something different to everyone. Uh, who, yep. who reads them or hears them, and it's the same with the song. And and, uh, and again, uh, that's why uh, 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 Gord Dowdy's 
poetry is, is so important to uh, Canadian rock and roll. Well said. Graham Rockingham has been with us, music critic. You can read his full review and everything and his thoughts regarding the hip uh, in your Hamilton Spectator and at thespec.com. Graham, we certainly do appreciate the time on the day after. Pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.